19 years ago, approximately 60 people worshipped in a little 4,000 square foot building on a tiny piece of property right at this corner of Plainfield and Douglas Road. We have very much to be thankful to God for. We have seen his abundant blessing year after year after year, and we need to give him thanks for his abundance and his provision as uh, we dedicate this building to the glory of God and the glory of God alone. What I want you to do is you who are physically able, I'd like you to join me as we do from time to time in our church on our knees. So if you're physically able, let's get on our knees together right now before our Lord. And let's dedicate this to him. Join me in prayer. Father, we do dedicate this building to you, to you alone, for your glory and your glory alone. We ask that you would fill this place with your presence, with your power, with people to praise your holy name. We ask that you would use this facility, this land, your people here to build your kingdom until our glorious Lord's return. Father, do your work in amazing ways here that only you could forever get the glory. And we praise you and dedicate this building to you in your son's name. And everyone said, amen. There was no structure ever built for God quite like King Solomon's temple. It started in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, and it would be completed seven and a half years later. It was built on a very important, special piece of property. It was built on Mount Moriah. For you who know a little bit about your Bible and history, Mount Moriah was where Abraham's faith was tested when God asked him to offer up his son Isaac. Mount Moriah was where David built an altar to God, and God answered with fire, consuming that offering and the plague was checked. This temple that Solomon built required massive work crews. The entire temple mount had to be built up and had to be leveled with monstrously huge stones. 1 Kings 5 tells us about that workforce. There were forced laborers numbering 30,000 people. They were sent to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in relays. Solomon would have 70,000 transporters, 80,000 hewers of stone in the mountains, and 3,300 chief deputies over the project and over the people. It was quite an impressive construction project. Great stones, costly stones, laid the foundation of that house with cut stones. Here's the amazing thing. No sound of construction was heard while they built Solomon's temple. We read in 1 Kings 6-7, the house while it was being built was built of stone prepared at the quarry. There was neither hammer nor axe nor any iron tool heard in the house while it was being built. The original prefab building, there you have it, the temple of God. Here's an artistic rendering of one such picture of the exterior with the temple mount, just huge. It was also very elaborate with carvings and ornate with gold and precious metals. In 1 Kings 6, we read about the walls of the house around with carved engravings of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. And later on, the entire floor was overlaid with gold. 
And gold would cover the carvings, the cherubim, the palm trees, the flowers, overlaid with gold. The the doors would be overlaid with gold. There was so much gold and silver and bronze. Solomon's father, King David, had prepared much for this house in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 14. Behold, with great pains I've prepared for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, 1 million talents of silver, bronze and iron beyond weight. They're in great quantity. Also, timber and stone I've prepared that you may add to them. If that wasn't enough, you can add more. Later on in verse 16, he says of the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron, there is no limit. 100,000 talents of gold would be $144 billion worth of gold in today's market. With a B. $144 billion. One million talents of silver was $24 billion worth of silver in today's market. First Chronicles 22, God's house that said is to be exceedingly magnificent and glorious and famous, and that it was. An artistic rendering of the interior of the temple looks something like this. This was a building like none other. It was a special building built for the glory of God. But Solomon in all his wisdom would proclaim of the temple at its dedication these words in 2 Chronicles 6.18. But will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. Similar words were echoed by the Apostle Paul as he observed the religious ignorance and religious arrogance of the people of his day. In Acts 17, he would say, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. No human structure could ever house the omnipresent God of the universe. Our divine creator of everything cannot be contained in a material edifice. So why a building? So so why a building? Solomon gives us some insight in 2 Chronicles 2.6. Who is able to build a house for him? For the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. So who am I that I should build a house for him except to burn incest before him? The house of God is to serve as a place for the people of God. You may say, well, well, what are we supposed to do with this place? And what are we supposed to do in this space? And, and what, are, what is the purpose of God's house? Why have we built this thing? That's what we are here to learn this morning. And if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And we are transported to the scene of the dedication of this temple in Jerusalem. We'll look at a small section, for the dedication takes up many, many chapters. We will look at verse 1 through through verse 6 of 2 Chronicles chapter 7. For there are some lessons for us to learn on what God wants us to do with this, his house. He starts off in verse 1 of chapter 7. Now when Solomon had finished praying, if you're taking notes, this is the first point. The purpose of God's house is to call us to prayer. That's number one. This is a place to call us to prayer. Now, there was a lot of praying going on at the dedication of, of the temple. If you look back at chapter 6, starting in verse 12, you'll see prayer and supplication and supplication and prayer and prayer and supplication 22 times in 24 verses. God's house is to be a house of prayer. 
And it was a humble posture of prayer. Second Chronicles 6.13 tells us that the king knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly and spread his hands toward heaven. He prays about a lot of things. We won't look at all the different details, but just understand this is what Second Chronicles 6 tells us he prayed for. He acknowledged God's faithfulness, uniqueness, and love, and he calls on God to keep his promises to his people. He asked God to look with favor upon his house at all times, every day, and for God to listen to the prayers of his people and to hear from heaven and to forgive their sins, to bring judgment on the wicked and to teach God's people the way in which they should walk, to listen to the foreigner who acknowledges him and prays to him and defend and protect his people and to listen to the prayers offered in this place and to fill his people with a joy. Second Chronicles 640, read these words together with me. Now, O oh my God, I pray, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. This place is to be a house of prayer. This is a place for you to come and call on God in prayer, to seek God's will in prayer, to draw close to your God in prayer. As a matter of fact, pray when you think of God's house. Pray when you see the house of God. And by all means, when you enter the house of God, spend time in prayer. May there be prayers of rededication offered here. May prodigals return to their Lord. May you who have wandered far away from God and the sin of this world finally have your light bulb go on and say, why am I wasting my life? There's no fulfillment in the sin of this world. There's only fulfillment when I walk with my God. May today you rededicate your life to your God. May there be prayers of restoration, families restored and marriages restored and children to parents and siblings and friendships restored. May you offer up prayers of restoration for God to do a work in your own heart. Maybe a forgiveness being offered, a forgiveness being accepted. May there not only be prayers of rededication and restoration, may there be prayers of salvation. May today be the day of salvation. May you place your faith in Jesus Christ and realize just how much you are loved. That God, though he knows all of your sin, all the skeletons in your closet, he still loves you. His son died for you on that cross and with open arms he says, I will forgive you. I will receive you. Just humble your heart before God and place your faith in him. Truly, God's house is to be a house of prayer. That's his will expressed in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 56, 7, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. It's God's will expressed in the New Testament, three out of the four Gospels. It's recorded. These words, Matthew 21, Jesus entered the temple. and He drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called what? A house of prayer but you're making it a robber's den. Now understand the context. People were setting up shop in and around the temple. They're selling their wares. They're running their personal businesses out of the church. We read in Mark 11 that Jesus would not permit anyone to carry his merchandise through the temple. Understand the business that was being being worked around and revolved around was the sacrificial system. People would come with an animal to sacrifice and the religious leaders would say, oh, sorry, doesn't pass inspection. You'll have to buy one of ours. And then they would gouge the people with exorbitant prices. 
You know what it's like going to a Sox game or a Cubs game. Sorry, you can't bring water in here, but you can buy our $5 bottle of water. That's what was going on at the temple. By the way, you may say, we have a cafe. Oh my goodness, we're doing... No, we're not doing this. Understand the context. There's no outside vendors setting up shop inside or outside this church. No one's being gouged with prices. This is set up, by the way, to barely break even. And any money that comes in goes right into ministry and missions. Understand that for the glory of God. That's to provide a place of fellowship and encouragement and prayer. And by the way, if you want to bring in your own coffee, you can. We won't stop you at the door, confiscate it, and make you buy ours. Okay? So you're, you're fine that way. And if anyone tries to set up shops, sell trinkets and clothes and lunch or whatever, we'll crack the whip and we'll run them out. No problems, all right? God's house is to be a house of prayer. And by the way, this place is a house of prayer. Right now, you are sitting on top of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of the prayers of God's people written out with Sharpies all over. I am standing surrounded and on top of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of the prayers of God's people all over this building. We had a special Sunday night. Here's a picture of it. When God's people came in and spread out, we called out to God and dedicated to this house and made this a house of prayer. And they were up here on the platform as well, writing out their prayers. And then there's one more picture of the panoramic of people gathering together, writing out as well as praying together. This is a house of prayer. It's been bathed in prayer. And by the way, just to let you know, there's a group of men right now praying for you, praying for me, praying for the worship and the services of this church. Every service, we have a people who pray and during the service and between the services. This is a house of prayer. The purpose of God's house is to call us to prayer. The purpose of God's house, secondly, is to overflow with God's glory. That's what we want, and that's what they had at the temple. Verse verse one and verse two, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices that were offered. The glory of the Lord filled the house. The priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the house. So you have fire that falls and glory that fills and this fire falls from heaven. Don't fear, we have a great sprinkler system just to let you know, okay? And and it consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. What was God doing? It was God's powerful approval and acceptance of the prayers that were offered and the sacrifices that were offered. Fire falls and glory fills. The glory of the Lord filled the house. And we read it again in verse two. The glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. It represents the presence of God among his people. It represents his presence in his house. It happened when Moses erected the tabernacle in Exodus 40. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. We read about it in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse four. The glory of the Lord went up filled the brightness of the glory of the Lord. I want you to understand a very important thing about this church. We want more than people in this space. We want God to fill this place. That's what we want. It's not just about having people here. It's about having God among us. If God's presence isn't here, this is no better than a grocery store. If God's presence isn't here, this is no better than a school building. If God's presence isn't isn't here among us, this is no better than one of the thousands of dead, empty cathedrals 
around this world. We want the presence of God among us. We, we want much more than a building. We want to know the glory of God and see the glory of God and experience the glory of God as he works in this place and works his will, his eternal will. And the more glory, the better. You see verse one and two, it filled the house. The priest couldn't even enter the house. I, I love this. We see it again in Second Chronicles 5. Then the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house. It was all about God's glory. This building is, is useless in eternal sense unless God's glory is among us. It's not about the glory of a man. It's not about the glory of a leadership board. It's not about the glory of a staff or committee. It's not about the glory of a big group of people gathering. It's about the glory of God. And let me tell you something. Dare not touch the glory that belongs to God only. Isaiah 42, 8, read this with me. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Get your hands off the glory that belongs to God and God alone. Isaiah 48, 11 is similar. My sake, for my sake I will act, for how can my name be profane? And my glory I will not give to another. This place is for the glory of God and God alone. Touch not the glory of God. Let me talk to you who have a business that's been very successful. Do not take the glory. Give the glory to God and touch not the glory. Let me talk to you who, who have some musical talent or some athletic skill or some, some exalted position. Touch not the glory. The glory belongs to God alone. You need to understand something, and so do I. Unless God gives us our next breath, we die and we become dust. The glory is God's. Touch not the glory of God. Give God the glory and him alone. I love the fact that God's glory just pushes leadership right out of the way. Do you notice that in verse two? They couldn't even get into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the house. May God's glory fill this house, take center stage, and push all the leaders, including myself, right out of the way. May he exalt himself in this place, his rightful place in this place. Let's get out of the way and let God have his way. That's what we want. My prayer has always been and will continue to be since day one, 19 years ago, that God would do such a great work here, only he could get the glory for it. That people will drive by this place and say, they're building again? They're building again? What's going on there? And that God would be center stage that God is doing a work and only he could get the glory for it. The purpose of God's house is to call us to prayer. The purpose of God's house is to overflow with God's glory. Thirdly, the purpose of God's house is to beckon us to worship, to draw us, to call us to worship. Look at verse three through six with me. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. 
And they worshipped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly he is good, truly his loving kindness is everlasting. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Thus the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. The priests stood at their posts and the Levites also with the instruments of music to the Lord, which King David had made for giving praise to the Lord, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Whenever he gave praise by their means, while the priests on the other side blew trumpets, and all Israel was standing. As we see these verses, we see worship. We see worship at the dedication of the temple. And, and there are observations and there are lessons for you and for me to learn about what it means to worship God in his house. Number one is this. Worship was large. Many people were gathered in worship. Verse 3, all the sons of Israel. First Kings chapter 8, 62 and 65, all Israel was with the king. And later on, all Israel was with him. A great assembly. We read that they came from the southernmost border and from the northernmost border. And people have come from all kinds of borders to be here this morning. You've come from Manuka and Morris and Plano and Sandwich and Aurora and Montgomery and St. Charles and Oswego and Plainfield and Platteville and Naperville and Romeoville and Yorkville and Sugar Grove and the list goes on. You've come to worship God. Oh, I'm going to say it, and I've said it before. Never be afraid of big church. There's nothing wrong with big church. Don't ever say a church is too big. That's like saying there's too many people going to heaven. If you say, our church is too big, that's like saying there's too many people going to heaven. What are, think about what you're saying. And if you don't like big church, you won't like heaven. If you don't like big church, you won't like heaven. Revelation 7, 9. After these things, I looked and behold, a what? A great multitude, which what? No one could count. We can still count people in this church, Okay. No one could count from every nation, all tribes, people's tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. You know what we read here? God likes big church. There's nothing wrong with big church. Worship was large. What else do we learn about worship? Worship was humble. They bowed. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. There was great reverence when they gathered together for the Almighty and great veneration for the great I Am and a profound sense of awe and amazement for the God who is like none other. He is holy. And they bowed with their faces to the ground. It's good practice to bow because someday everybody, everyone will bow. Philippians 2 tells us that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Their worship was large and their worship was humble and their worship was very focused as they proclaimed. Look what they were focused on. They worshiped and gave praise to the Lord. Now, this is neat. Fire falls and they didn't run for cover and they didn't scream and yell, get out of here before we burn. No, Fire falls and they give praise and look what they focus on. Truly he is good and truly his loving kindness is everlasting. The focus of their worship was on the goodness of their God and the love of their God. You want to worship God? Focus on his goodness. You want to worship God? Focus on his love. His goodness. He says truly here. In other words, never doubt the goodness of your God. Never question that God has been good. 
That, that's the first enemy of the tact, uh, tactic of the enemy. He, he wants you to question God's goodness. He wants you to doubt God's goodness. That's what he did in the garden. That's what he'll do with you. That's what he'll do with me. See, if he can get you to doubt the goodness of God, then, then, then God doesn't have your best interests in mind, and God doesn't understand the situation you're in. And you know what? You know better than God, and so you can do whatever you want. And that's when you start making horrible mistakes in your life. When you start questioning the goodness of God and decide you know better than the Bible, you know better than his word. Don't question his goodness. Don't doubt his goodness. And it says here, he is good. It's present tense. He's always good. He's forever good. Today he's good. Tomorrow he's good. Next month he's good. Next year he's good. He's never going to stop being good. Nahum, verse 1-7, the Lord is good. Psalm 119.68, you are good and do good. Psalm 136.1, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Psalm 145.7-9, they eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness. The Lord is good to all, including you, including me. And by the way, the invitation is open for you to try him. Try his goodness. Psalm 34.8, say it with me. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. His character is good, his actions are good, his motives are good, his will is good. And by the way, he stores up goodness. It's stockpiled. Psalm 31, 19. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. So God has all of this abundant goodness in store. But only those who fear him and take refuge in him are going to experience it. God has his goodness set aside for you. Fear him. Reverence him. Wake up on your knees every day and worship him. And he says, my goodness is there for you. Take refuge in him. Swallow your pride and refuse to think you can figure it out on your own because you won't touch the goodness of God and he won't give it to you. But when you live in fear of him and when you take refuge in him and not your money and not your smarts and not your strength and not your connections, when you take refuge in him, he says, then you'll experience my goodness. You've heard it said, God is good, what? All the time. And all the time, God is good. They focused on his goodness. They also focused on his love. Truly, his loving kindness is everlasting. Again, truly, don't doubt his love, never question his love. I love how Henry Blackaby said in an experiencing God. See everything with the backdrop of the cross. He proved his love for you once and for all when he died on the cross. You never have to question the love of God ever. He said, I loved you as clear as day when he sent his son to die on the cross for every single sin you and I have ever or will ever commit. He said, I proved my love for you. Don't you dare question it. What kind of love is it? We're told that his loving kindness in this verse is everlasting, verse three. It means it never ends. It's a love that will never fail. It's a never ceasing love. Lamentations 3.22. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new how often? Every morning, great is your faithfulness. Do you realize when you woke up this morning there was fresh love served up for you today? The love of God is served up fresh every single day. 
That's how much you're loved. It's always abounding love. Psalm 103.8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. There's no end to it. It's an inseparable love. You can never be taken away from God's love, and God's love will never be taken away from you. Romans 8.35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Well, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, any horrible thing that ever happens in your life, you will never be without the love of God. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will, will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. You will never be without God's love. That's his promise. And it's a measurable love. You can't put a, you can't put a, a limit on it. You can't measure it. Ephesians 3.18 may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. He says God's love is immeasurable. It, it's so huge you can't put your arms around it. How is it possible? First John 4, 8 and 16, because God is love. He is love. Worship, what was it like? Well, it was big, large, lots of people. It was very humble and reverent. It was focused on his goodness and on his love. And in verse four, we, we read that worship was sacrificial as they gave to God. The king and all the people offered the sacrifice before the Lord. The king and all the people dedicated the house of God. Now, I want you to understand a very important connection when it comes to sacrifice, giving to God, and worship. Listen carefully. As the people focused on God's goodness, generosity came naturally. As the people focused on God's love, generosity flowed abundantly. As their hearts were filled with praise, they had no problem giving to God. As their hearts were filled with humility, they had no problem giving to God. Their hearts were focused on the goodness of love and God. There was no problem in giving. Listen carefully. What is your heart filled and focused on? When a heart is focused on self, you won't give a dime to God. When a heart is filled with pity and pride, you'll make every excuse not to give to God. Yeah, I'm talking about money on a dedication day. Get over it. Because I want you to learn some important truths that they had at the dedication. What has your heart been focused on and what has your heart been filled with? Because when it's filled with you and not God, you won't give a thing to God. When you focus on how good God has been to you, you focus on how much God loves you, it's so much easier to give. Now, I want to make an important explanation to you who may be guests today. And we put this in, your, in our bulletins too. You can see it. We're not about your money, so, so don't use that as, as an excuse, okay? If you do not know Jesus as your Savior, don't give a dime. You heard it from this pulpit. You can read it in the bulletin. This is a day for you to receive from God. We, we don't want you to give anything to God financially. Please don't, because we don't want you to think you can buy God's grace. We don't, think, we don't want you to think you can be good enough to go to heaven, because none of us are. So if, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, please do not give a thing to the Lord. This is a day for you to receive the Lord.
I want you to notice, though, they were united in their generosity, God's people. Verse four, the king and all the people, and it says it again, the king and all the people, verse five. There was a combined generosity of the leaders and the people, all of them coming together in joyful generosity. And by the way, this was more than animals that they sacrificed. This was gold and silver and bronze and precious stones. We read it in First Chronicles 29, six and nine. The rulers, the princes, the commanders, the overseers, they offered willingly. It wasn't taxed and it wasn't taken. They offered it willingly. And the people rejoiced because they had offered so willingly, for they made their offerings to the Lord with a what? With a whole heart. When you give to God, give willingly, and give with a whole heart. That's the way we give back to God. Generosity was an integral part of their dedication. It says here, thus the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. Generosity and dedication went hand in hand. And by the way, we didn't plan it this way. Just God's sovereignty works out. Today is our dedication of our new building and it also falls on our special offering day. The fifth Sunday, whenever we have a month with a fifth Sunday, we take the entire offering and we put it toward the building fund. And that day happens to fall on this day. Worship, it was large, lots of people gathered. It was humble as they bowed. It was focused on the goodness and love of God. It was sacrificial as they joyfully gave. And verse six, worship was musical as they played and as they sang. Verse six, the priests stood at their posts and the Levites also with instruments of music to the Lord. And these were instruments King David had made in giving praise to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. And they gave praise by their means while the priests on the other side blew trumpets. A parallel passage in 2 Chronicles 5 even gives more detail on the instruments and on the song. Chapter 5, verse 12 of 2 Chronicles, the Levitical singers, Asaph, Haman, Jeduthun, and their sons, then kinsmen, clothed in fine linen, with cymbals, harps, lyres, standing east of the altar, and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets. Now that would have been loud. In unison, and the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and glorify the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord, he indeed is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. Music is a very important part of worship and important to God. And we recognize that at this church. And I want to talk to you about music for a second when it comes to instruments and God's word. What do we learn in God's word about instruments? Psalm 33, three. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. When you play, play with skill. And when you play, play with joy. In other words, do your best, give it your best, practice. You're playing before the creator of the universe. Give him your best, not your sub-best. And do it with joy. Not like it's a chore. We also read variety. God loves it in Psalm 150. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. We see brass and strings and woodwind and percussion and loud percussion and more percussion and resounding percussion. Some of you don't like percussion. You think it's evil to have drums on the stage. And God says there is no evil instrument. And by the way, God likes them loud. Some of you play instruments, but you haven't started playing for the Lord. 
it's about time you start playing for the Lord. Why don't you talk to Raleigh? Why don't you jump up with the, with the orchestra? Why, why don't you jump up with our worship team when we have our worship team and start playing for God? Play with skill and play with joy. God has lots to say about instruments. He also has a lot to say about songs. Psalm 147.1, praise the Lord for it is good to sing praises to our God for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. In other words, when you sing, don't just stand there. Some of you don't sing. You just stand there. Might as well be saying peanut butter, peanut butter, peanut butter, peanut butter, and just moving your lips. You know what God says? Sing. And I know what some of you say. Well, I don't know those songs. Oh, well, God has something to say about that too. Psalm 33, 1, sing to him a what? New song. Psalm 96, 1, sing to the Lord a new song. Psalm 98, 1, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Psalm 149, 1, sing to the Lord a new song. In and his praise in the congregation of the godly ones. Isaiah 42, sing to the Lord a Oh, I think you get the idea. God wants you singing new songs. He's very clear. God likes new songs and he wants his people singing new songs. Why? Because God likes fresh expressions of his greatness and his goodness and his glory and his love. That is why. And by the way, we're going to continue to obey God whether you want to or not. We're going to sing new songs in this church because God's word is very clear and it's a command. And by the way, a church that never sings new songs It's in disobedience to the word of God. And we're not gonna disobey God's word. Now, there's nothing wrong with hymns either. Ephesians 5.19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3.16, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and with thanksgiving in your hearts to the Lord. There's nothing wrong. We blend it at our church is what we do to the glory of God. And by the way, some of you sing and you sing well. You need to start singing up here. You need to join our worship team. You need to talk to Pastor Raleigh, our worship pastor, and say, I'd like to to sing. Some of you need to start joining the choir. Once in a while, we'll have the choir. Most of the time, we have the worship team. You need to start singing and using your voice and leading God's people in worship to the Lord. So what is the purpose of God's house? It's to call us to prayer. Let's make this place a house of prayer. It's to overflow with God's glory. It's to be all about him and all for him. Let's let him fill this place with his glory. What's the purpose of God's house? It's to beckon us to worship, to gather in large numbers with humble hearts, focused on his goodness and love, and to be generous with our giving and joyful with our giving, and to be musical as we play unto him with skill and joy and as we sing unto him with skill and with joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this place. We thank you for this place you have provided for your glory. Teach us how to be good stewards of your house, of this land, of these people. Lord, help us to really follow your leading as a church. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. You who know the Lord is your Savior right now, just take a moment and talk to the Lord. Talk to him about prayer. Maybe there's some things you need to pray about. Do that now.
Talk to him about giving him the glory in your life and not touching his glory. Being humble before your maker. Talk to him about your worship. Focusing on his goodness, his love. Giving to him generously and joyfully. Singing, playing. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. You may be here this morning. And you have never placed your faith in Jesus for the salvation of your soul. You've been a religious person. You go to church from time to time. But God has revealed to you that you need him. There is sin in your life no one else knows about, but God does. And he stands ready to forgive you because he loves you. And you may say, Scott, that's me. I need God in my life. I need his forgiveness. What do I do? In the quietness of your heart, I just want you to call out in faith right now. Just use words like these. Lord Jesus, I am a wicked sinner. And I desperately need your forgiveness. Please save me from all my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for loving me that much. I place my faith in you, Lord, to save me. I place my faith in you alone. I can't save myself. Forgive me, I pray, of all my sin. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've called out to the Lord this morning, we would love to rejoice in that decision for Christ. And uh, you just need to let us know or let a good Christian friend or family member know that you've trusted the Lord as your Savior.